This is the Talk Magazine podcast series. My name is Helen Walsh, and I'm the president of Diaspora Dialogues. DD helps emerging writers turn their craft into a career through mentorship programs, professional development seminars, and public talks and conversations. We record our events in order to bring the best of Canadian writing and thinking to you through this series. Vulnerability and the Public Space was a panel conversation at our Talk Winnipeg Symposium in 2019 with comedian Laura Ray, Emily Mueller, Professor Nigan Sinclair of the University of Winnipeg, and moderator Tasha Spillett. This conversation touches on the possibilities and pitfalls of public dialogue as we share public spaces with people who think differently than we do. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. Is everyone feeling comfortable in their spots? Good. I'm watching. My English name is Tasha Spillett. I'm an author here in Winnipeg. I'm a PhD candidate and most recently a very pregnant person. And so I was just telling the panelists earlier that I was feeling very hot and these lights are not helping the situation. So yeah, I'll just melt here in front of you, which is okay. So I have the great privilege of moderating this panel, Vulnerability and the Public Space, for the next about an hour. Uh, What I'm going to do is I'm just going to introduce you to our panelists this afternoon. I have a couple just Kickstarter questions, but if Uh, The conversation in the green room is anything like the conversation that happens here with you all this afternoon. I don't think there'll be much need for many more questions. And so our panelists this afternoon are Lara Ray is an award-winning comedian and television writer. She is one one of the co-creators of the international hit series Little Mosque on the Prairie. She was one of the co-authors of the Winnipeg Comedy Festival and served as the artistic director for seven years. 17 years. 17 years. So another edit in, for the organizers. Her current passion is Pantry, an organization she founded to deal with food insecurity in her West Broadway neighborhood. Next, Emily Muller is a philosophical counselor at LifeWise Philosophical. She is trained in psychology, philosophy, and European cultural studies, and works as a trained philosophical counselor with the American Philosophical Practitioners Association. That was a lot of philosophical. (laughs) Dr. Negan Sinclair is an Anishinaabe and an associate professor at the University of Manitoba. He is an award-winning writer, editor, and activist was named one of Monocle Magazine's Canada's top 20 most influential people and 2019 Peace Educator of the Year by the Washington, D.C.-based Peace and Justice Studies Association. He is also father to Sarah, who is with us this afternoon. Way more importantly. There you go. In fact, I was like, oh, Sarah, hi. And hi, Negan, as well. (laughs) (laughs) So I have two Kickstarter questions. The first one is, what came to each of your minds when you read the panel description? I guess, you know, the idea of vulnerability, you know, as a, as a, as a concept, you know, and a, as an idea and what it means. Because on a, in a personal level, you know, having um, transitioned four years ago, you know, certainly uh, vulnerability in public spaces is something that I've had to consider, I think, for the first time in my life in a, in a, in a meaningful uh, way. And then at the same time, very quickly, I began to understand that for better or worse, you know, that I was really at the top of the hierarchy when it came to, you know, safety in my community just because of privilege and, uh, and a whole bunch of other things, the area in which I live, my social economic status and so on. And so now I've been really kind of looking at that word, and we were talking uh, prior in the uh, green room about this idea of both being able to assert and speak for oneself, but also being very cautious about the idea of uh, a term uh, overstating, overstating harm, overstating harm for the purpose of scoring political points, you know, and, and, and so on. And so I would say that one of the things that brought me into this was, was the idea of the changing and protein kind of definitions of, of what it means to be vulnerable and also what it means to be um, what it means to be safe, and also how we can actually allow within general principles any kind of a venue to to serve 
these needs, especially when the meaning of these things does change. When I was asked about this question, the first thing that came to my mind was how in our own library system in Winnipeg, we're looking at a very different kind of issue about vulnerability and safety and safe spaces. So I'm a regular user of the Downtown Millennium Library in Winnipeg, and as many of you may know, there's now a security gate at the front of that building, and the idea around that gate is to help the library create a safe space where there is less, less conflict within it and maybe less weapons or other problematic materials being brought into the library. But this is a very controversial move because although it's a, a safety-oriented position, it creates a sort of a sense of unwelcomeness. And for those of us who feel like the bureaucratic police state is not always friendly or hasn't treated Manitobans in equal ways, it's a, it puts a bit of a chill on the landscape. So I just want to note a couple of things about that physical context that we can maybe bring into our discussion about emotional safety also. So one of the things I notice is that both the library staff and critics of the library invoke the idea in Winnipeg that the library needs to be a sanctuary and a kind of safe space where we're modeling a, a, a kind of face of the city in some way. And so there's symbolic content to how, how it feels and how we represent it as a space and also how we protect the people who are using it. So these are very loaded sort of symbolic issues around the public space. And that's definitely happening in the argument in, in Winnipeg. And we're using the same concepts on both sides. Ideas about inclusivity and ideas about vulnerability and safety are being invoked on, on each side of this divide. So maybe there's shared interests animating these different positions. That's interesting to me. Also, I think we're raising questions about for whom is our attention to safety really oriented? Whose discomfort matters most to us? What kind of discomforts do we need to accept as, as uh, we tolerate our neighbors? And what kind do we need to mitigate against? How, how do we bear those costs? And how do we maybe bear those costs in an equitable way so that we're all discomforted the right amount? That's a hard question, but I think we're posing it in this case. The last thing, and I hope we were able to come back to this, is there spin-off effects in how we handle safety concerns? So although there's initial problems we want to deal with by creating rules around creating safe spaces, those then create their own weather systems of interactions. And so one of the fears in the library case here is that teenagers don't want to go through a security check and empty their pockets. Not because they're going to be banned from the library, but because it's just a feel thing, sort of changes the way we use spaces. And nobody's trying to prevent teenagers with cigarettes and joints in their pockets from going to the library. I mean, that's not on anybody's list, but it's a likely side effect of creating a, a kind of policing agent at the front door. So figuring out that there are unintended side effects and spin-off effects from the way we manage our safety is something I think that's important for us to consider when we get a chance to have a, a serious discussion like this one. Yeah, I have, a, I have an anecdotal example actually yesterday. Um, and, you know, and the, another word I'd love to introduce because I, I do think that it manages to kind of uh, break the kind of the incredible, almost exponentially growing confusion that is introduced into any discussion when there is too, so many individual assertions of needs, which is uh, to talk about things in the basis of classist moves. And I think that in many ways the library's move is 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 classist uh, at its at its root you know it's a form of security theater that is often classist and but yesterday there was a man and i would say that um you know um, maybe people would read him as being you know having issues with income you know based you know based on you know and that, that may be entirely unfair but i would say based on how little they look at my bag when i go through and how much how much interest they showed in him and then there was a racial component, him also being indigenous and also being physically quite large. And they went through his bag uh, a great deal, and then they found nothing. But he kept setting off the, um, the alarm on his coat, and he clearly didn't want to empty his pockets. And then finally, he, he, in frustration, he just took his stuff and he laughed. And then he yelled as he went, it's weed wrapped in tinfoil. Right, And so at the end of the day, even though it's legal, he just from a personal dignity, a human being kind of standpoint, maybe he didn't want to be the guy who's having weed unwrapped on the table because he thought personally, and then again, I'm making presumption that may be wrong, that somehow he might be further judged. Right, And so 
it was just the whole the whole thing fell down into kind of conversations around aesthetics and class, and in no way was anybody safer at the end of the day. Somebody left being unable to go in, and it's very, very, very frustrating. So, bonjour and Duck. Hello, everybody. My name is Negon, and uh, welcome to Treaty One territory. Uh, my people have been here for a very long period of time, and it's an honor to have uh, diaspora dialogues and the TOK Winnipeg here. I wanted just to think about our Bolivian relations who are going through uh, assaults and murders as we speak, who are uh, simply by the mere fact that they are advocating for a democratically elected government, uh, not perfect by any means, but a democratically elected government whose only fault was being indigenous uh, in a world in which uh, anti-indigenous imperialism continues on on a daily basis. And so I want us to think about our Bolivian relations when we're talking about space. I mean, you can't literally walk in any street in Bolivia right, right now and not have a fear for your safety. You know, when we talk about uh, Treaty 1 territory, and what we're really talking about here is we're talking about space. And so I think this has to come into this conversation. And, and when, we, uh, when we greet you at Treaty 1 territory, we'll, we'll often name the nations whose homelands exist. So for that case here, it's Anishinaabe, Cree, Oja Cree. Uh, the Dene peoples who have used this territory a long time, uh, in and out, uh, the Lakota Dakota peoples, also known as the Assiniboine, and then of course the homeland of the Métis Nation. And so the, the peoples who have come in and out of both signatories, but also have used the historical use and occupancy of this territory, when we say them, we see them. And that's why it's so crucial that we name them at the beginning of that acknowledgement. But then we say the second thing, which is we commit to acting differently, or we might call that reconciliation. We might call that fairness. We might call that justice. We, for us as Anishinaabe, we call that treaty, actually being treaty people, living treaty. And that means that we share space and we don't lock people in, in areas of the house and keep them there forever. Or we don't uh, declare what they will wear, or we don't definitely don't take their children and then teach them that everything about those people are wrong. That, that's definitely what we don't do, but that is what we have done. And that legacy that continues every time we speak about those, those nations that we are partners with, and we see them, and then we have to act accordingly. And that's what public space is supposed to be. That's why we're supposed to act differently. And that's why we're supposed to talk about land redress. And yes, we're supposed to talk about restitution. And we're supposed to talk about return, a return, a revitalization of languages before we ever talk about the word reconciliation. So that's the first thing that I thought of. And then I sat at, sort of had a moment of silence for Don Cherry. And then I said to myself, Let's all remember that we had an individual in this country who was on the taxpayer dime paid for nearly four decades to spread hate, xenophobia, homophobia, general distrust towards immigrants on a daily basis. And we held that up as a national pride. Uh, we called him the greatest character in the country or whatever CBC decided to call him that week. Number he, seven. Number seven of greatest the greatest Canadian. Canadian of all time. And then now uh, he's being turned into a martyr and uh, a martyr, whereas he, you know, we've decided in 2019 that, that the, the term you people has now become a problem, but you can go back and on any YouTube, I encourage anybody to look at any YouTube if you want to, you know, sort of document the history of xenophobia, cherry xenophobia, and see that he's been saying you people, especially about indigenous people, for decades. And I grew up every Saturday night, my family watching this, and us somehow turning to this voice as a point of the national character. And so that, you want to talk about public space, we have a, uh, this week, we're still struggling with the notion of what is safety in public spaces. And it's always refers to as you people. It's always you people. You people almost inevitably are brown people, immigrant people, indigenous people, people who don't speak English, people who don't dress in a particular way, have a certain sexuality, have a certain perspective or vote in a particular way. That's you people. And so this country continues to grapple with that notion. And I, and I think public space is all about that. That's, that's what that how will we say you people is our people? If I could add to your ironic comment, I, I think it's no longer allowable that we allow people like uh, Ron McLean uh, to have these moments of silence when these things are spoken within their hearing. And then to, um, and I understand psychologically, there are things that happen when, when we are confronted by this. But I also understand that with practice, one can, when confronted with any kind of danger or dis-ease as a human being, that with practice, we can practice being able to say, 
hold on. And Ron McLean used to be famous for his now-nows. You know, now-now, now-now. But they were not on display the other night. And, and an image of Ron McLean that I will hold in my line forever is this simpy little thumbs up at the end of the, of, of the broadcast, you know, frozen in time forever, that we must take responsibility. I think there's an important up. connection between the point that you just made and land acknowledgements. And I'm really curious to know, you know, there's always that very scripted land acknowledgement. And I purposely actually don't um, typically do land acknowledgements before events like this for the reason that I'm interested more in what the actions are because we know that relationships are made and held and revived and live only in actions and not words. So are we a nation of Ron McLean's in terms of how we are in our treaty relationships with one another? Well, I mean... I, there was a there was a number of tweets out there saying let's not forget that the, nobody turned off the segment you know and and so uh, it's the same thing with the prime minister's brown face black face like <laughs> I'm not so worried about the brown face black face because I've experienced that my whole life I know I know that racism exists I know that uh, privilege exists I know that power exists but the hundreds of people complicit in that who were also either dressing up or standing beside in photographs some of whom were racialized people indicates that there is a lar much larger narrative of blackface, brownface that is condoned. And therefore, uh, what is that silence and how do we engage that silence while also being mindful that as a person who is confronting that within spaces, there you put your own safety at risk. And that's a really important uh, uh, distinction to make is that if you are the single voice engaging that, that violence in that moment, what is you putting yourself at risk for? That's the concern that I always have when I, when, you know, Sarah and I talk about this all the time. My daughter, who's here tonight, um, we talk about this all the time. We say, at what point do you pick and choose your battles? And what point do you decide that you're going to confront racism? Are you in a safe enough situation in which you can do that? And then also, uh, what is the outcome of that? Because it's never in the moment. It's always what happens the days following. Um, how will people treat you? How will people act with you? Uh, will they continue to limit you or will the, uh, will the um, event the treatment become more draconian as a result of you standing up and speaking. And that's what we always have to weigh in those situations. It's worth looking at. You can Google, there's a very funny sketch by Baroness Von Sketch about land acknowledgements where a woman delivers one at the beginning of a play and then she finishes it and a woman puts her hand up in the audience, a white woman, and says, so should we leave? You know, if we're on somebody else's land, should we all leave? And she tries to unpack, you know, what's just been said. And of course, there's nothing that's expected to be done. And in some ways, I think that one of the questions around these land acknowledgements is this idea of what we were talking about this before, what Zizek calls kind of a luxury tax. That we, we allow somebody else, usually authority or an organization or a corporation or a company to basically say, oh, we're doing this or you know, we acknowledge this is taking place. And at that point, we can all feel good enough that we can move forward without a great deal of guilt. And in some ways, I do think that um, uh, we are not containing within the land acknowledgement all the beautiful things that you said that it's meant to contain. I'm not certain, and I include myself in this, that when I hear it, this is what I'm ruminating on. I believe that I'm simply, you know, doing a rather superficial reminiscing about about some of these uh, continuous issues. So where at what point I guess I'm wondering do we does accountability come in? So we we've acknowledged that oftentimes these words kind of float in and float out and make people feel very nice and they can check off the box that they've done this PC thing. Uh, and where does the accountability piece come come in then for for example if we take the Don Chair example, if we take other examples of where we know when land acknowledgements are being delivered but then not acted upon, um, at what point do we, does it, are people who are more historically marginalized and who often carry, like Nigan said, the weight of doing this work, um, at what point does that responsibility shift to others? Yeah, I mean, this is a rights and obligations thing, right? So what's our, what are our obligations? Well, rather than speak to our obligations directly, because I think that's a very challenging question, I don't want to tackle it exactly, but I think 
it's important that we become mindful, maybe, of the psychological reality that apologizing, whether it's something we do in our interpersonal relationships or something we do in our international or intercultural relationships, is something that tends to make the apologizer feel much better, whilst making the person who receives the apology feel only marginally better and hopeful that something might change. And so, obligated sometimes. And, and They're ob obligated. Yes, yeah. they may be obligated to say something comforting, like you're forgiven or something like that. But it's not, it's, it's something that is good to incite action or attention, but as a thing on its own, it serves to um, make people feel better about what has happened in ways that seem to like serve the interests of the powerful. So making that into something that isn't, that, that is in fact inspiring and connects people to actions is something I think is very important. My sense as a counselor is that uh, we are often interested in doing the right things, but brains are very lazy. And we will take easier options if those options are available. Um, and so easier things that make us feel reconciled or make us feel good will always be very tempting. And we should be, maybe be on guard for that always. I do think, though, it's hard to know what actions we, we, could, we could all undertake. And so maybe in this space that we've created for acknowledgments, maybe over time the community can evolve to saying more challenging things in that space. I think it's not a, not a terrible start to get one's foot in the door and talk about those things in public as Manitobans here. But it's not the end of a conversation. <laughs> it can, can only be uh, the beginning of one. And I think you were saying the same, Nikon, that it's a start. Well, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I was at the final day of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission final, final event when we presented the 94 Calls to Action. I say we meaning the country, other uh, indigenous peoples, intergenerational, generational survivors presented the 94 calls to action, the final report to the prime minister. And so I watched two things that day that really impacted me. The first is that he smudged. And I went, that's, that was remarkable to me because you have to remember that we had Stephen Harper up to that point where had refused to come. He had never come to a, a TRC event. And so not only did the prime minister come, but then he smudged. And then I turned to my sister, I said, that's amazing. And then uh, I particularly reflect back on that moment when I think about him buying a pipeline and going, you can't buy a pipeline and smudge. Those are two irreconcilable things because what you're saying is the earth has power and that is what I'm bringing to, I'm bringing to my life. So how can you do something that is absolutely irreconcilable with that, with that issue? And then the second thing what he did is he went up and he said, we commit fully to the 94 calls to action, got a standing ovation, various, various, whatever. And then I said to my, I said to my sister, you know, that he, the Indian Act's over. Because you can't commit to the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is one of the calls to action, and then have the Indian Act. You can't say Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determine and then draconianly control them in every aspect of their life under the Indian Act. You just can't do that. That is irreconcilable things. This is not a matter of political opinion. This is just fact. And I said to my sister, well, the Indian Act's over. It's over. And she, go, and she goes, well, I doubt it. And then I said, uh, and here we are, you know, how many months later, and it's still here. It's as powerful as ever. And now the prime minister is so committed to this pipeline that it's going to be hammered through and every single person who stands up is going to be arrested under the Indian Act. That, that is the hypocrisy that we live in. And when we only attach ourselves to words and we only say, well, words matter. They are, uh, the apology is given by the prime minister, but then nothing changes the day after. That is the absolute problem. That's why what I say to Canadians is when I work with them, I, I say, know what your leadership is doing for what it is, which is saying and acting in two absolutely opposite ways. And that's also called a lie. Like, so let's call it for what it is and then let's act accordingly. And the most amazing thing to me is it really doesn't matter what political party gets voted in. They are all liars. And I don't mean for that to be depressing. I mean for that to mean let's move on that. Let's make something happen because it's not like government's made outside of people who vote. If you vote, you are participating in the process of bringing that lying. And that's not to blame anyone. That's simply to say now that now we've inherited that, let's hold it and then act accordingly. Uh, let's demand more. Let's become knowledgeable on what political leaders commit to and then make sure that they act on those commitments. Let's make sure that I don't care what face it is, whether it's an Indigenous face or non-Indigenous face, um, when we vote them in, that we ask them to deliver on what they say they're going to do. And then also that we walk with them when they do good things. Also that we, when they fall and we stumble, that we don't always you know, toss them under the bus, but that we help them to learn. And if they continue not to learn, then we remove them. Then we, then we choose somebody else. That's what I say.
I'm interested in that, what you just said, act accordingly. So what you described in the offering of uh, the smudge to, to the prime minister, that is an offering of relationship. That's an extension of a relationship. And so how long do we continue to offer and extend this relationship to such a harmful and destructive other party? How do we act accordingly? Yeah, I can't agree more. What I say to people is, I say, uh, name me a time in Canadian history in which Indigenous peoples have picked up a gun and shot first. And you cannot. There is not a day. And then I ask people a second, I say, how much longer do you think that's going to be? And what I mean by that is not to say Indigenous peoples are, are, are invested in producing violence, burning down a building, shooting a political leader. What I'm saying is, is that how much longer do you expect Indigenous peoples to be patient with you to be patient, to continue to invite you into our homes, to teach you the ways, and then continue to uh, be call you things like our family, which is what I greeted you with today. I said, hello, my relations, because we are treaty people. And how much longer do you expect Indigenous peoples to be patient with this ongoing genocide, which the Prime Minister himself has recognized, but it's not real genocide, right? Because it's not genocide, genocide, because if it was genocide, genocide, we'd all be acting differently. But if it was if it's just genocide, then it's just something that's an indigenous thing. And again, I feel like I'm the person that's being the most depressing here today. <laughs> but it's yeah. it's really just talking about safety. Like I like I think truth is before any reconciliation, and, and it's just being being um, brave. Well, one of the fundamental mechanisms in which a genocide is able to take place, especially outside of a war, is that uh, during the genocide, people that are in the dominant culture continue like nothing is happening, you know? And that, that is one of the ways that it's allowed to take place. There's an interesting parallel, because we're talking about two, two things. One is uh, somewhat serious, but not really, and the other is terribly serious. And so the one that's not really serious is Don Cherry, because at least in terms of his harm, it's been reduced by his dismissal. But there is, a, there is a story, and it's from a Christian uh, tradition, and I'm not putting any extra weight on it because of that. I'm just, it happens to be a good story, and it's probably apocryphal. And it's the lesson of the woman that's taken in adultery. And it gives us a very famous saying in, in Western culture, which is uh, casting the first stone. And very much you will see in internet discourse, it's like, who are you to say this? You know, what have you done? And so on. And so it's about, you know, this idea of basically uh, virtue signaling. And so people in this story, a woman is taking adultery, they're virtue signaling by throwing rocks at her, you know, and shaming her publicly, as, as we see metaphorically every day on the internet. And the one part of the story that I think people forget is once Jesus has said to the people, whoever among you has cats, you know, who, you know, who, you know, who, who has not sinned, cast the first stone. And of course, nobody uh, has not sinned. So it's a reminder that we're all fallible. And then the second is, and this is the part that's forgotten, he says to the woman taken in adultery, and I'm not suggesting that adultery is a sin, but in the context of this, he says to her, go and sin no more. And the problem I have fundamentally with people like Don Cherry and with the land acknowledgement and with our continuing conversation around reconciliation is we continue to sin after the apology. And so we have to acknowledge the fact that an apology is not, a proper venue because we continue the crimes, basically. I'm interested in um, moving this conversation a little bit because with the apology, I think part of what we're talking about is um, the impotency of words and how words can kind of take the place of actions. Um, but it's also the case that one of the things we were asked to think about and thinking about vulnerable spaces is how words actually can often be a form of action. They can be harmful or exclusion exclusionary or um, distressing or, or corrupting of safe spaces too. And so, uh, although I think words don't always do what we want them to do, they sometimes do more than we want them to do also. And that's part of what we're, we're trying to talk about is how conversations get, get away from us and maybe create harmful effects. And so maybe, uh, Nigan, you could speak more about how, how Don Cherry and people like that you know, contaminate public spaces in Canada and what we might do to, to create genuinely safe spaces. After all, many Canadians have a relative somewhere like Don Cherry. And my sense is that at least some of the belovedness of the character is not, is not solidarity, but a sense that he is our Archie Bunker and that we all, we all have someone at work or someone on the bus or someone in our family to whom we have to say, now, now, okay. <laughs> You, you may say this, but you, you walk alone here. 
And so I, maybe you could help us understand from your perspective what, what it would mean to create spaces that don't uh, have that toxicity to them in which they, there is a, a genuinely more inclusive atmosphere where we don't have the dangerous words. I wrote a column about this just short, just a little while ago about um, uh, way before actually the uh, Don Cherry incident. So I think this is a situation involving the term you people. And uh, the reason why I know the term you people is because uh, I'm the most Manitoban of Manitobans. And what I mean by that is I come from basically everybody. <laughs> and uh, the only people I'm not coming from are the Dakota, Lakota peoples, but I pretty much include everybody, not the Dene either, but pretty much everybody else. And uh, within my non-Indigenous side, uh, I had a relative at Thanksgiving one time uh, where the issue of uh, indigenous poverty came up during conversation. People were asking me about something. And then, then my auntie said something about corrupt chiefs. And I said, well, it's not the issue of corrupt chiefs. It's the Indian Act. And then she said, uh, and, and I said, we're talking about protesting and, and trying to change that. And she said, well, why, do, why don't you people stop protesting and complaining all the time? And I went, auntie, like, I'm your people. Like, this is not a matter of you people. I am your people. And what I mean by that is, I love you, auntie. That's where, that was my engagement with now, in that particular circumstance, it worked, and my family is constantly talking and engaging, and I'm not sure changing all that much. So I'm not interested so much in the Don Cherries of the world, and I am more interested in the Ron McLeans of the world. What, and, and so I saw, you know, I see this sort of international change amongst Indigenous leadership and in the arts particularly. I mean, we're at an arts conference right now. We're talking about literature. We're talking about writing. But my experience is, you know, in really brave voices like Kent Monkman. So right now in Winnipeg at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, Kent Monkman has an exhibit. And I saw the, you know, fully sold out opening night with hundreds of people spilled out into the aisles. And, and what was his major objectives within that, that exhibit? It's mostly residential school, child welfare, indigenous senses of gender and sexuality, violence, engaging violence, and then doing so in really interesting, provocative ways, mostly involving play or innovation or reinserting Indigenous peoples into equations in which they've been erased from, like the Canadian Group of Seven and having the, uh, uh, you know, the mischief eagle testicle sodomizing a cowboy in a scene and, and what does that look like and, and how does that create images of both collaboration but also dialogue and conversation. And so I think that there are some very interesting ways that artists are doing this work and as I work in graphic novels and, and I also Tasha does that as well and Tasha is a graphic novelist as well. Uh, I think one of the reasons why we work in graphic novels is because A, it goes to young people. That's where young people are at. That's where young people are engaged in. But then also it goes to a matter of, it reaches such a wide audience that it doesn't have to do with as much class. I mean, you still have to buy the book. You still have to be able to you know, read the words on the page. But, but engaging people in, who are most engaged with those front lines of the revolution, I think that's probably the reason why I like to work in graphic novels. Uh, and we just did a graphic novel called This Place, which is retelling Canada from Indigenous points of view over 150 years and telling it in 10 different ways over 15 years apiece. And so that's a really um, good way, I think, that artists are doing those interventions and trying to create safety in those public spaces, particularly classrooms, but also on the streets. I mean, one of the things that interests me, and I, I guess it reconciles with something that we've kind of danced around, but we haven't brought up as an expression, and it's an expression whose meaning has, has changed significantly, which is this notion of free speech. And so when you talk about what Monkman's doing, in, the, in a general sense, it's a form of parody, right? That we are taking things that we understand conventionally and we're, we're inserting uh, new ideas and dynamics into them to create something new that, that we, we think about. And one of the ways that we parody all sorts of conventions in society is through a, you know, a discipline that I've worked in in years, which is comedy. And there's been a tremendous amount of comedy about what you can and can't say in a public space. And one of the places I think, and I know this from daily experience on the internet, where this is an extremely uh, divisive uh, subject that has torn our community apart is the notion of a safe space being a place where one might be able to say things that are challenging and upsetting and provocative, but at the same time do not have career-ending uh, consequences or significant consequences for those who might say things that are out of line. You know, and those, and I'm, ex I'm, I'm not making a position, I'm just sort of illustrating the two sides of the, the story. And do you think when we talk about safe spaces, because we're not talking about fire extinguishers and so on, at least in this discussion, we're talking about how people behave and interact with each other in, 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 in communities. 
how does this uh, play into the notion, the two different definitions of safe space that we were talking about? One is that I am allowed to make mistakes and say things that may be temporarily hurtful. You know, and I get this as a trans person all the time, and I have to make that distinction between somebody saying something that's extremely hurtful and upsetting, but from a place of ignorance, and then from a place of bigotry. And then is it my responsibility to determine which is which? Is it the venue's responsibility? And I think one of the challenges we have as a culture and a group is to, to, to manage that. And is it, is it manageable? Can you say more about how comedians struggle with this issue? Because I think in some ways, you know, by being provocative, you struggle with an even deeper level of how to do safe shock than, you know, I, I noticed in the last... 10 years, I think it's harder for, um, for academics to get good conversations going yeah. with students about controversial issues, especially people who are insecure in their professional careers, which is a lot of academics working in classrooms at different stages of their jobs. And people just shy away from complicated issues because it's, it's difficult to, yeah. to rub people the wrong way or to create situations in which students might say ignorant things to one another. I think, I think we've, we're kind of, there's a chill on a little bit. Yeah. But if we're feeling that in the academic institution, we don't, we don't run nearly the risks that you guys run. We so also, We also have tenure. Let's not forget yeah, that. Yes, too. well, that's, I mean, why, that's why I crucial. talked about the, uh, the vulnerable. Way, way, way <laughs> yeah. down the line. And I mean, you know, and I would also include, you know, and one talks about it, and I don't want to overstate a person's uh, vulnerability. But when you go on stage for the first time, you are vulnerable. You are trying to be funny, which is not something you can compel uh, in front of a group of people. And then at the same time, your ability to uh, make humorous and develop a style and a point of view is ignorant in the true sense. You know, you just do not have the skills. And then people will make uh, mistakes and they'll say horrible things. Now, there has become an investment in doing so. And when that is decisive, when your only goal is to simply say things that are shitty and provocative, you know, good riddance. But in many cases, and it's why I do not as an individual police kind of open mic declarations uh, to some degree, because I, I, will take somebody, uh, I will take somebody aside, you know, and I, I, will, I, will, I will talk to them, you know. But we do see a situation where there is a, there are venues where, there's a question of how does one respond? If I say something provocative in a situation like this, it can be managed because nobody paid to get in and so on. So we have a kind of equilibrium. Somebody could say, that's bullshit, Lara. And then we, will, we can open up and have a dialogue on the conversation. If I say something within the context of, a, of an enclosed space, which is what my performance is, and somebody says, you're a transphobic piece of shit, and that's not the way it is. Am I interrupting? You know, is the heckler then becoming the dangerous person, or is the person on stage? And if there's no consensus, if everybody is heckling, is it then okay? And should the person then leave with their tail between their legs? Or is it if two people are upset, that's enough for a consensus? I think that these are important things that we need to discuss and figure out. And I think we're, we're in a really messy place well, right Yeah, now. I was going to say, like, <laughs> says, we're describing a pretty messy situation. But, you know, I was trying to think to myself, like, what's the difference between play and violence? And what's, what, how is safety produced out of all that? Like, uh, Sarah and I were driving over here tonight, and I don't know, guys, if you know this, but the Santa Claus Parade is on in winter in Winnipeg. And uh, in Winterpeg. And so, but what did we notice? Like, remember, Sarah, when we were driving over, what did we notice? Like, there's a massive amount of police presence like massive <laughs> armed police officers. And I said to Sarah driving over here, I was like, well, welcome to town Santa, because it is just, it is the SWAT teams are out. And what I mean by that is you were talking about the library earlier. Like the problem at the library is not uh, as much the situation. Like, do we all want to not have weapons in the library? Clearly the answer is yes. I don't want my daughter to go to a space in which there's live, there's weapons in the library. But the bigger question is why are there weapons in the library? So our response to that is, well, let's just ban all uh, metal, all put people in very dangerous situations, which perhaps was not the motivation for the people who put the metal detectors, but is the outcome of it. And so is the situation involving, how do we create the circumstances in which play can 
our conversations can take place. And is that even possible when you have armed SWAT team officers a block away where we're all supposed to be celebrating this? I mean, if Santa is not the commercial face of capitalism, but more the face of community and togetherness, which is what people like to sell more than the other one. But is that possible in a space in which you have armed, the the police state is present? Mm -hmm. And it's all a form of policing, isn't it, right? Like um, one is obviously much more violent and and present and has much more sweeping powers, right? But we're always, when we talk about these things and what, what one can do and not do in a situation, it's always a form of policing, right? I mean, that's why I think art is so powerful because art provides that ability to find that space. I think comedy finds that space and, and most often is the place in which you're, you're railing against what are often considered to be the norms, capital T N, capital N. But, you know, like, like I think, I'm not sure this is the greatest example because it is referred to as the whiteout here in Winnipeg, but it is a, a particular kind of moment that the city comes together where they're trying to support one another. And people, it is one of the very few spaces in the city where people from all different political stripes come together. Like I saw indigenous peoples from the streets there. I saw some of the most right-wing conservative people together. And they're in the same space. And for like this brief moment, they're talking about being a Winnipegger. Now, at the same point, it is really because this, it is provided safety for those individuals who are in very privileged positions to come to that space, which is the space in which Indigenous peoples already are already there. So it's really a colonized space. It's also a, uh, as m- many people in Black Lives Matter pointed out, a racialized space. But I, you know, in those kind of moments, I look at it and go, well, there's that interesting moment in the city where there is some kind of safety there. Maybe not absolute, but I often try to look for a little bit of hope here and there. But what about for the people who make their homes in that? In Absolutely. That Absolutely. Absolutely. Colonized Same space. with the fringe. Colonized Same space, yeah. with the fringe. Uh, Emily mentioned something really interesting at the beginning, like safer for who? And when you were talking about the Santa Claus parade, like there will be children and families there who the police make feel less safe. And so I want to go back for I want to go back to that. We just have a we have about 15 minutes left. I want to go back to that and then anything else you want all want to add but like the safer for who question. Well, I think uh cities often function by trying to uh, give taxpayers what they what they want. And I think Winnipeg is not alone in sort of focusing on trying for for reasons we all shared to like bring people into the downtown and thinking that this is going to benefit our our urban core and creating safe spaces. It's definitely something which happens with the library too. I have a 12-year-old and I'd very much like to be able to bus him to the library and know that he is safe there. So creating spaces where families want to come means meeting their needs and uh, many suburban Winnipeggers don't want to come downtown. And so like that's a that's a reconciliation of it, of its own. Um, so the place are probably making some people feel safe and other people feel less safe. I think even becoming aware of that is, is maybe a step forward in our public conversation, recognizing that, that we have different kind of desires for how the city feels and how that, how that policing manifests itself on the street. Um, I think that's something we're just starting to maybe talk about as urban Winnipeggers. Um, hopefully the next generation, as we rebuild the downtown, which is revitalizing, we'll have a lot of conversations about how we want that space to feel and, and making it feel less like um, a camp when people are down there for the jets and more like an integrated uh, city more often. I think you're right. That's a, it's an interesting to see those people downtown because they're not usually there. So I think talking about those needs in an ongoing way is, is useful. I mean, the premier of Manitoba says he doesn't come down. He doesn't feel comfortable coming downtown. And in many ways, the premier of Manitoba is talk is the voice of rural Manitoba. I mean, you just have to look at the voting and the, so on and so forth. Comes from rural Manitoba. And you know, I worked this year, this week, sorry, oh, with uh, twenty one different schools in rural Manitoba and with the Manitoba Rural Learning Consortium on on integrating Indigenous education within those spaces and empowering each individual teacher because they're often one or two from each school. The first thing I said to them is, you know, as you begin to talk about this and as you begin to integrate this in whatever stage you're at within your school environment, you're going to be called the left-wing nut in your space. You're going to be called the bringing your political views. Really what you're doing is you're talking about reality, which is that every single person in this province will work with, sit on a bus beside, be married to an Indigenous person. And that means that we all are in this thing together. And what the reality is that we have to look at one another and are we going to produce more conflict or not less conflict? And that's what those teachers are trying to do in each particular area from Steinbach to Grunthal to, to Ashern to 
you know, in various different ways. But if we continue to have people within very lot with very big microphones, with very large platforms, who are building in a system in which you can either vote for this way or this way, and there's no middle ground there. We live in a power structure in which there are binaries, there are black and white, there is you are the good people or the bad people, and those power structures are really in place. And that's where you get the police state from. Uh, you get the police state because people are like, well, I don't really want the gray area, I want the black and white area. Therefore, I'd rather just create the police state than have uh, a situation in which citizens look at each other and care for one another or look after one another's children or... Because we do live in the, in the mushy middle, you know, and so often I think we're polarized by online discussions. You know, and you mentioned the whiteout, you know, and I will concur. You know, I was down at the library. I'm not a big uh, sports fan, but I am one of these kind. I'm a town booster, and I'm also somebody when the Olympics or something, I'll, I'll join it. I enjoy it, you know, and I do think they're collective and they're, they're harmless outside of, you know, how much people are paid and so on. It's, it's a harmless kind of activity. And I went to several of those whiteouts and I, I, I did not feel unsafe. You know, I did not feel judged or anything like that. Everybody seemed to be participating. But I mean, some of the things that you talked about, this being people's area, those are, those are fundamental. And when they introduced the ticketing as a, as a form of security theater, uh, I stopped going because it, it lost, it became classist. But it's, what's, what was very interesting about that event is a good friend of mine uh, decided to write a, an editorial about whether or not the term whiteout was exclusionary and kind of racist. And there was a lot of eye rolling. And, you know, I would say this is certainly something that, that you could certainly discuss, whether or not I would say that at the end of the day it's an important thing or an accidental distinction or, or so on. You know, it seems like a, a semantic debate that's maybe not a hill to die on. However, what made it profound for me was the level of aporium and, and vitriol and violence and threats that this woman faced simply by bringing it up as a conversation. And at that point, it actually shifted my view. And I thought, underneath this, is this, you know, your, your hill to die on, you couldn't call it jet fest? You know what I mean? It, you know, then I think, okay, now it's like the Eskimos. You know, why are people, why are people gonna, gonna die on that hill? Why are they dying on the Don Cherry kind of hill? So, I mean, I wrote a column about this. And what I said when the, my column was, is that you may not think this is racialized because it has to do with XYZ, but it is racialized space. The term white itself comes with that baggage. So hello, Charleswood. This doesn't mean that you can't celebrate the Jets. It means that you be mindful that you are in, in a space in which there are multiple different perspectives and your perspective is not the perspective. And what I mean is not to attack anyone from Charleswood, which is a, uh, a particular area where I think a lot of, uh, I got the most amount of response from. That's probably my own issue. Uh, a large readership of the Winnipeg Free Press as well. Thank you for supporting the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, I, I'm also saying that it is our job as artists, as writers, as, as people who, who in get, integrate in those spaces to try to bring those perspectives where at times I like to give a little bit of generosity and then also give the truth. And, and so that generosity, that's why I think comedy is so powerful because at the same point, it is this kind of catharsis or it is this kind of moment of, of, of collaboration, but then you, you, then the punchline comes and the punchlines where you learn and, um, you know, graphic novels, I think are the same way, but also music. I think, you know, music's come into mind and, uh, in the audience here, we have Leonard Subner, who is like an incredible musician, musician who brings words and our ideas of our people as Anishinaabe to a huge audience and in such a way that people may not always know that it is Anishinaabe, but is thoroughly Anishinaabe and, and, you know, various musicians like that, that does that work. And the, yeah, and the respect for sincerity, you know, that this editorial was written, you know, Oscar Wilde used to say, you know, that uh, people that they write at the top of their voice, you know, and this was not written at the top of somebody's voice, nor was it calling for anything. It was not a demand. It was not a manifesto. It was simply an observation that was then clearly and well articulated using some of the concepts that you talked about, what whiteness means, you know, and that it has a meaning uh, semantically. And so it was considered and well argued and nobody read it and people just reacted in an extremely violent fashion. And to me, that was the most important thing at the end of the day about it is to really examine how underneath 
this veneer of, of superficial tolerance is a, is a tremendous underpinning of, of violence and hate. I'm interested in, uh, you guys have both mentioned generosity on the one hand and sincerity on the other. And I think that those are really important values for um, public discourse and dialogue. But it's hard to know when they're in place. And to some extent, we have default settings organized around how generous we're going to be or what kind of space there is for people to make mistakes, how quickly we're going to, to sort of leap into feeling even worse about them than when they began speaking, right? And I think um, both of these concepts, sincerity and generosity, evoke uh, tolerance, an idea of like what it means to live in a tolerant space with others where we're willing to have, have, have our conversations out with them. So one of my backgrounds is I, I got a chance to teach political philosophy and philosophy of law for many years. And so both of those disciplines are fundamentally interested in issues of tolerance and some of the, the legal underpinnings of our society really pull in favor of tolerance and making errors on that side. So uh, without committing myself to any particular view, I just want to take a minute and explain maybe why our, our liberal tradition is so invested on erring more on the side of suffering one another than hushing each other up. It's, it's important, I think. So Mill writes on liberty toward the end, what he thought was the end of his life when he had tuberculosis. He actually ended up living a few more years. But his concern in writing on liberty was that democracy is a really good thing. But if we don't have ways of making sure we really know what people are thinking in society and really engaging that and having open influence amongst each other, it's very, quick, very quickly, a, a democracy can just become a tyranny of a majority in which people are sure what is right and, and, and stop other people from having other kinds of views. So in a lot of ways, that tradition comes from kind of imagining that you're the rebel, like that you're the person whose society is going to silence because the thing you have to say is so true or so potent, so progressively transgressive that no one will let you say it. And uh, for Mill, as for other thinkers, Christ is a big person who has this role of like being someone who is silenced but also Socrates, you know, people who had ideas that said you can't just go on being unethical have often been put to death. So yeah. the idea is like, say, keep you, it going. You just described uh, Pinochet's murdering of all the artists and writers first. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly why. So there you go, by the way. You. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <clears throat> no, no, that's fine. And I, I don't, I don't want to be on Pinochet's side. No, 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 I mean, like, you described exactly why he killed them <laughs> yes. first. Yes, he killed them first because they're progressive and dangerous. Exactly. Radical, exactly. and, uh, yeah, and so intellectuals like Mill are very keen to organize society in such a way we can't snuff out unwelcome stuff. Often the language around that is blasphemy. Like, what is it that can't be said that's so dangerous that if it were to be said, it would poison the minds of children and, like, make things impossible? What are those unsayable things? Well, Mill's view, which forms a, a big part of our democratic theory and some of the underpinnings of law, is that you should just go way, way out to the extreme of tolerating as many things as you can um, and, and draw the line kind of at physical violence. So that if somebody isn't selling a recipe for poison or inciting like young or otherwise immature people to violence in an immediate way, you should let it roll uh, because it's good for us to be discomfited in that way, even though it's hard. I think this is a very unsatisfying view, and my students don't like it in some ways, even though they're inheritors of it. And the reason they don't like it is because it seems to dismiss emotional harms. After all, many of us would prefer to break our leg than to have our religious things burnt in front of us or something like that, right? Physical harm isn't the only thing we care about. We care about lots of other stuff, and that's certainly not what's wrong with us. So maybe our laws should, should build that in somehow. We should honor that. But Mill's position is really a cynical position that says, look, the chances are that when the majority comes upon thinking something is right, they're always going to abuse that authority to shut down other views. And we really run great risks as a society of thinkers, letting anybody be so right that they're allowed to tell other people that they can't express an alternative view. So one way I think of this is, um, so Thomas Jefferson we're kind of reflecting on Epicurus, an ancient thinker I also really like, uh, said, why should I care truly about my neighbor's religion? It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my bones. That's still a very radical idea in a world in which blasphemy is illegal in most countries, not in ours. So what does it mean to tolerate blasphemy? How much discomfort of other people's views should we allow? I think this is a really fundamentally hard question for us as a society because we recognize that 
hate speech and corrosive speech is, is dangerous. We, we do care about what we think. The liberal view, which I, again, I just want to put on the table, not necessarily vote for, but I think it's important that it be put in place, is that we have a lot more to lose from silencing each other than we have from suffering one another. This is rooted on the one hand in a cynicism about what majorities will do, but also an idealism that if we let all of the ideas out, the best ones will get more supporters. That there is a meritocracy, maybe not of people, because we all have different setups and skills, and things, but a meritocracy of ideas that's possible in a free society. That is pretty awful to experience because having people say hateful, hurtful, dangerous things has always been a big ask. And but I don't actually, think it's been ignored by Mel. I just want to respect um, the sure. time. No, no the done. time that we were given that's by it. the organizers. I could tell that this panel could go on a very, very long time, and it started in the green room. And so I just want to, before we thank the panelists and the organizers, just leave room for, for a couple brief questions, really well thought out questions. My question is for you, Emily, because I found it interesting earlier when you said that we have to resist the urge to take the easier option. And I wonder if you felt like in some ways you might have been doing that today on this stage, because I feel like there were some times that you were sort of tossing questions over to Digong. Nigong, yeah. Particularly like the John Don Cherry one. So my question to you is kind of a challenge is as to whether you can answer your own question about how we make these spaces safe. Uh, because I don't think it's really up to people of color and brown people to talk about how to make spaces safe because we're not usually, you know, the ones verbally shooting first. Well, that's interesting. I spend a lot of time thinking about creating safe spaces for people in conversation. And maybe I haven't modeled that here exactly. I guess I mostly think about creating those spaces for other people. Maybe I don't act in them as often as I should myself. I'm interested in creating spaces in classrooms and in communities, like through the Manitoba Association of Rights and Liberties. We try to set up lots of conversations about issues going on in Manitoba that allow us to make, I don't know, better, better uh, more informed ways forward. So I think maybe in my own point of development is... I'm interested in listening right now. So, and also, there's that phrase: "Stand beside, not you know, or stand beside people when they're you're when you're asking them to do something, right? Or, or that we're trying to figure something out. It's probably better to take follow the lead of others who have directly experienced things. And so, I think that that's a fair comment to say that sometimes when uh, what I always say is don't tokenize people, don't tokenize people in terms of their experience, but it is okay to ask them for their advice or for what what they would do in that moment or and then but the the key is to not then be silent to after they speak to also recognize what the gift that you've been offered and say what does that mean to me and and that's what that gift giving is all about so we refer to that in our language as baggage nun ni baggage nun i have offered that to you but you must then pick it up so it's baggage nun is i've tossed it at you baggage nun is i have offered it to you that's where with our tobacco offering so when we have something is offered offered to you you have to choose to pick it up i cannot pick it up for you and so that's what I mean when I say that that's what communication looks like, is that um, you may invite, but then also you must take it inside and what does it now mean to you? And I think this is like a very important callback question to a question that always inevitably gets asked in forms such as these. It's like, well, what do I do? What can I do as like, let's say a settler person? What can I do as a settler person? And I think it's just to figure out for the person to figure out what they do and then to act upon that. And I think that that might be a great invitation to the audience to end upon is what do, what will you do from here? And all the conversations that we've had, what is the action that you can take away from the conversations that, like Nigan, you said, were offered to you, this invitation for a better relationship? So if we could just thank our panelists and the organizers for this uh, phenomenal panel this afternoon, that would be great. I would, yeah, I guess, you know, my final summation, and it, it goes back to the, to the question that was asked, was uh, this idea of, for the first time in my life four years ago, in an experiential and emotional way, I had what many people have experienced for their whole life, whether indigenous, people of color, and so on, which is that at the beginning of entering a space, I am already in the position where 
I experience vulnerability because I'm the only one of, of a category in the particular room. And so to acknowledge the idea that already when we are dealing with a, a situation of dominance, that when somebody is in a space, it doesn't even require any kind of uh, overt action to recognize the idea that somebody is vulnerable simply by, by being one or two representations of a group, you know, whether it's a visible minority or a, a, a sexual minority or whatever it might be. And that's one of the things I'm, 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 I'm trying to be more and more conscious of as a human being. And uh, the most important thing at this point uh, is probably don't drive that way. Right. Avoid <laughs> Santa. Leave, do not leave. Do not drive that way. You will be in traffic abyss for 14 hours. All right. So go that so way. So thank you for coming. Everyone avoid Santa and have a great weekend. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this program. Please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast provider. If you're an emerging writer interested in receiving our open calls for submissions or invites to our events, please join our DD newsletter by emailing us at info at diasporadialogues.com with subscribe in the subject line. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>